Martin's edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. I appreciate you joining me this morning. Before we get to our law of the day, I just want to briefly mention that on the last several episodes, we've been going over um, Lex Rex, the law is the king. And I did want to spend some time uh, on this podcast looking at contemporary issues. So we will be taking a look at just a few things that are going on uh, in the world today. My goal is to always keep this uh, podcast 30 minutes or less uh, for, for most folks who have a, a, a fairly average drive time to work and, and things like that. Um, I found that doing a long podcast not only takes a, a exponentially uh, larger amount of, of preparation beforehand, but it's also harder for a lot of people to listen to uh, in one in one sitting because it's, you know, hour, two hours long, things like that. So the goal is to keep this fairly short so that uh, most people can enjoy it. So with that, let's begin with our law of the day. It is Deuteronomy 22, verse 6 and 7. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. All right, so that seems like a fairly odd law, because, well, I mean, there's not that many laws that are like it, uh, with re- reference to um, wildlife or coming across animals and harvesting eggs and things like that. So it, it seems kind of strange, and there's no penalty associated with it. You know, not every law has a penalty associated with it, at least a human penalty or a penalty that the government of Israel was supposed to place upon someone. Some, most laws have something like some form of restitution where you pay back the person that you stole from plus extra or something, you have to make you know sacrifices of some kind. But here it's a law, but it's very general. And what's interesting about this law is it has to do with restraining one's desire to harvest or restraining one's greed in taking from the earth. There is a related proverb. Um, it's Proverbs 12, verse 10. And it's, and it's related because it says this. It says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. So in that proverb, we hear a reference to your own animals. You know, if someone who actually is righteous cares about his own, um, his own animals, his his oxen, his goats, his chickens, his his cows, he doesn't mistreat them. Okay, he cares about them. Doesn't mean he doesn't eat them when he needs to, but he cares, and he is a steward over them. And this is the same idea here. The idea is that if you take both the mother and the young. You basically wipe out an entire family. You you cut off production of of um, of future um, animals or eggs or or what whatever the topic is. This, again, these are case laws, so it's not just applicable to birds. It's applicable to anything that you see in nature, anything that you take from the earth. If you take what is produced, and if you also take the source of the production, you will deplete the earth, and you will take too much from it, and you will cut off any ability of the earth to replenish itself. 
So basically, it speaks to the issue of over-harvesting to the point that the population of whatever you're harvesting declines. But the goal for God's people is to enable the earth to replenish itself. It doesn't mean that you can't have eggs, you can't harvest them, but you have to have a perspective that is based in the future. Your goal is to enable future generations to have stuff and to enable um, the earth to keep replenishing itself, that you'll be able to harvest tomorrow. If you harvest it all today, then you might not be able to harvest it tomorrow. So um, leaving things better than you found them, leaving things for the next generation is what we see here in this law. Now, to go back to some application, again, I said there's no earthly penalty associated with this law. So really to violate this law is to incur judgment from God. It partially means, now part of that is fulfilled in the fact that the supply of food will diminish. I mean, if you violate this law, if you go throughout your property and you just harvest whatever you can without even thinking about the future, then of course, one day you're going to wake up and you're not going to have anything. You will have nothing to harvest. And in a sense, that is a judgment from God. You have, you've depleted the land and so you've affected yourself. So people will naturally feel the effects of over-harvesting. But at the same time, there is a divine judgment here. You know, God says that you may live long. So the idea is if you keep doing that, you will not live long because you are abusing what you are to be a good steward over in accordance with, with God's word. So the earth is not meant to be abused in this way. And like I said before, this law does not just apply to farming and hunting. It applies to anything in which we are tempted to over-harvest. Just think about concepts like poaching, hunting elephants, or what happened to the buffalo in early American history when they were over-harvested. What, what was happening was people wanted a quick buck. So they would just hunt the elephants for their tusks and the ivory, or they would hunt the buffalo for their hides, and they would take nothing else. And all they wanted was right now. Their focus, their entire focus was now, now, now. I want satisfaction. I want wealth now. The problem is, if you do that, you're going to deplete the earth and and God's judgment is going to be upon you. Now, the proper way to do that, nothing is wrong with getting ivory from elephants. Nothing is wrong with getting buffalo skins. But how you would do it, if you were a good steward, in accordance with God's word, is you would domesticate them or you would harvest just a little bit and you wouldn't waste the whole animal. You would you would hunt the buffalo. You would use all the parts and pieces. You would eat it. You would maximize the effort that you put in to, to hunt it. And then, yes, you could sell the skins, uh, and, but you would enable it to replenish. You would not um, deplete the herd. Same thing for elephants. You could certainly domesticate elephants. You could have an elephant farm where you produce more elephants. You have a family of elephants that produce babies. And when they get old enough, you would harvest them. You would eat the meat. You would take um, whatever you needed. You would use all of it. And then you would have the ivory that you needed. So there's a, there's a way to do it that protects and preserves God's creation while at the same time enables you to still reap the blessings and the benefits that God has put 
creatures here for us. So there is a, a healthy balance there. Now, since God does not explicitly provide a punishment, there is some freedom here. Um, and this is where we have to have a discussion about what's the best way to go about applying this law today. Because governments need to ensure that stewardship is, is happening among the people. But the thing is, is that stewardship is best accomplished via private property rights. When people own their stuff, they're more likely to take good care of it. But when everything is shared in common, usually that's when things decline um, very rapidly in quality and in stewardship. So you want to give people responsibility and ownership of their own land. And you're more likely to have a, a replenishment of the land when you do that, when people are responsible for their own land. So I know that today we have things like hunting licenses and fishing licenses, and, and I get the understanding behind them. Because if everyone out of state decides to go fishing at the lake and one of the public lakes and we over-harvest the fish, well, then the lake will no longer have any fish. And that's not going to be good, not for the environment and not for people who want, who want fish. So it's hard sometimes to figure this out because that, you know, some of those lakes aren't owned by one person. I mean, it's easier if you own a pond on your property. And I have family members that own ponds on their property. And of course, they're, they're interested in keeping that pond useful for many different reasons, right? Because that pond uh, attracts wildlife that they enjoy, whether it's geese or ducks, and it has fish in it. So they want to be able to fish in it. And of course, when they go to sell their property, they need their property to be in, in pretty good shape so that, well, someone will actually buy it. Um, so the idea here is that private property is the best chance of having good stewardship of the earth. Now, but not everything I understand is owned by one family or one person. And so maybe you do need to have some place for uh, hunting and fishing licenses. But what I envision it being is quite simply, you would only have to have hunting and fishing licenses for public property, that property that was owned by the state or owned by the county. So certainly you would have a ranger or somebody there observing the property, taking care of it, and you would have to have a license if you wanted to to hunt or fish on that property. But if you're on your own property, you should not need a license to hunt the deer or to, you know, fish because it's it's your property. Okay? You're going to be a good steward of your property and it's more likely that that's going to happen than um than the government. It's more efficient if if you are the are the property manager and the steward of your own property than if the government tries to control everything. So, uh, a good analogy that I found is um digging for something in your backyard. Like imagine if you, you know, you were trying to dig for gold in your backyard. Well, and you dig a huge pit, you tear up your yard. Tear up your yard, you you've dug it out. And now, what are you going to do with that? You got a big pit in your yard. Well, first of all, you are liable if if anyone gets injured and falls into it. The Bible is very clear about uh, safety on your property. If you have a, a dangerous part of your property, then you need to make sure that people are aware of it and that no one is getting hurt when they come onto your land. Okay, and if they do, you're responsible. You have to pay 
uh, that person for any injury that's been done and damage that's been done. And of course, if you go to sell your property, you're going to have to make it look nicer. You're going to have to fix that crater that you just dug trying to find gold. So the idea here is between punitive and preventative. And this is a theme that we're not going to get into too much today. But whenever you look at government, the question is, are laws going to be preventative or punitive? So preventative is, I'm going to try to stop you from doing something in the future. So I have all these laws in place to prevent you. But punitive is, well, uh, if you do these things, I'm not going to stop you from doing them. But if you do them, you get a severe penalty. And, and, it, and it's more of a punishment for what has happened. Now, the Bible is more punitive than preventative. But our culture is the opposite. Our culture has fees and licenses and, and permits, all kinds of nonsense that basically punish people up front for something that they might do, something that might happen. But God, that's not how God wants government to be. God says, no, no, no. You only punish people for things that they actually did. So if you want to build a swimming pool on your property, you can do whatever you want. But just keep in mind that if anybody falls in because there's no fence, you're liable. You're liable for that. And, and you would actually pay with your life. So the punishment is, would be so severe that it would also serve as a preventative or deterrent measure. So the idea is instead of just increasing regulations and permits and licenses and all that nonsense, all the bureaucratic red tape, instead of doing that, what you do is you hold people responsible. You give them freedom. You hold them responsible, okay? And if they break the law, you actually enforce the law and you make it severe enough that people will think twice before they build a balcony with no railing or before they dig a pit without putting a fence around it or something like that. Anyways, that is just uh, some ideas there, some thoughts regarding that law. Again, there's some freedom, but we have to look at that law in light of other laws in scripture. And the idea being that God wants the government to punish people for what they've done that's wrong, not what they might possibly could do in the future. So with that, I wanted to briefly touch on a contemporary issue, and that is one of the recent executive orders put out by President Joe Biden. Now this order is dated February 4th, and it is an executive order on rebuilding and enhancing programs to resettle refugees and planning for the impact of climate change on migration. Okay, that's pretty much my mouthful. But that is the title, by the way, the whole title. It's nine pages long, so it's not terrible. But it basically addresses the issue of refugees and climate change. Now, I'm not entirely sure how those two go together, but we'll find out. So first of all, the executive order expands the refugee admissions program. So trying to you know, figure out who do we let in. And the uh, the law, the executive order here, it's not a law, it's an executive order, kind of keep that, keep that clear. The executive order enhances a focus on those who are vulnerable. And he says this, he says, my administration shall seek opportunities to enhance access to the refugee program for people who are more vulnerable to persecution, including women, children, and other individuals who are at risk of persecution related to their gender, gender expression, or sexual orientation. So basically, he's taking the refugee program, and it's not just about religion. It's not just about persecution or genocide. He's expanded it to include anything related to you know homosexuality, transgenderism, things like that. So 
that's basically included in the list of, so instead of just widows and orphans, so the Bible would say, care for the fatherless, the widows and the orphans. Now we're caring for the homosexuals and the transgenders and, and things like that, which God would not be pleased with. But okay, that being said, that's what this law, this executive order, I keep, I keep correcting myself there. It's not a law, it's an executive order. This is what, is what this executive order is trying to do. It's also talking about uh, trying to increase the desire to keep families together. It says uh, these programs should be administered in a manner that ensures transparency and accountability and reflects the principle that reunifying families is in the national interest. And I'm all for reunifying families. It's just that you have to be more specific about how you're going to do that. And you can't ignore the fact that there are people trying to come trying to come across the border that are that are not good people. So you have to figure out how to uh, how to filter that. Then he goes on in the executive order to talk about the special immigrant visa, which it basically is a program for uh, welcoming people in or helping people come into the country who were allies with us, who helped us and helped serve the United States in some of our foreign conflicts. So Iraqis and Afghanis and, and things like that. So now this, I can actually... I can actually see this being a good thing in many ways. And what I mean by that is this. If the United States is going to recruit people to help us in these foreign wars. Now, I'm not saying we should be in these foreign wars. That's that's a whole other topic. But let's just say that we are. You get involved in a conflict and you're recruiting the local population of that country to help you. But you know that doing it puts them in danger. Well, certainly people should be compensated for help. I mean, money can be given or, or protection. And we need to fulfill our, our end of the bargain. If we, promised, if we promised money or if we promised protection, then we should, uh, we should follow through with that. If we promised that they'd have a chance to come to the United States and live here and get a visa and a work permit, then yeah, absolutely. We should, we should do that. We should reward people for helping us. And so I'm all for the government uh, keeping its promises and helping those who helped us if we if we haven't helped them. Again, you need more specifics on, on what does it mean? Because all it says here is those who have provided faithful and valuable service to the United States. Well, okay. Uh, what does that look like? Is that, does, does simply passing one piece of information, does that count? Or is it, you know, an ongoing kind of thing? Anyways, this uh, executive order also expands um, the concept of spouses. So, for example, spouses, so again, the idea of being trying to keep families together, the idea of spouses is not just those who are married, okay? It's, it also includes um, same partners of same-sex couples and, and life partners and things like that. So again, we're taking the, the uh, sexual orientation and gender identity and gender concept and we're just we're just slathering it all over the the immigration laws here executive order i should say um to be more inclusive if you will anyways that is some of the uh some of the changes there for the executive order regarding immigration now they he ties it to climate change and there's only one brief section on climate change but the order basically says that within within 180 days so within basically 6 months the government is going to um, get some kind of report. They want, he wants to get a report 
on climate change and its impact on migration, including forced migration. And he says this, it says, this report shall include, at a minimum, discussion of international security implications of climate-related migration, options for protection and resettlement of individuals displaced directly or indirectly from climate change, and mechanisms for identifying such individuals, including through referrals, and proposals for how these findings should affect use of United States foreign assistance to mitigate the negative impacts of climate change. All right. So there's a lot of stuff there, but basically the report is going to try to figure out, well, how much migration is because of climate change, whether directly or indirectly, and what can the government do about it? What should we do about it? Who are these people and how can we help them? And I just want to spend these last few minutes addressing the issue of climate change. I'm not going to go into facts and figures and details, but most of these kinds of difficult issues can be clarified with questions. And here's an example. In the military, we debrief ourselves on how the mission went. Okay, so you just ask questions. You start from the from the result and you work your way back. You peel back the onion. So I'm going to do the same thing with climate change. The first question you have to ask yourself is, is climate change actually happening? Is the climate actually changing? Okay, that's question number one. Question number two is, is the change natural? Is it part of a natural cycle of change? Or is it man-made? But the next question is, if it is man-made, what percentage of change is natural? And what percentage of change is man-made? The last question is, if there is man-made change, what can we do about it that would actually work? How can that be measured? How could we know that our policy was working? The thing is, is that our government is not answering these questions, but is assuming too much. That entire order talking about climate change, migration based on climate change, first of all, how do you even know that people are moving from one territory to another because of the climate changing? And then they mentioned direct or indirect. Well, what does indirect look like? I mean, it's so nebulous. It's so vague that it could be, it could be anything. I mean... It's just mind-boggling, and, and it's really not helpful because the government assumes that man-made catastrophic climate change is happening, and then we're going to do all these things about it. Well, if you misdiagnose the problem, you are probably going to end up with a bad solution, all right? So, I mean, it, it, would, it would be just like a doctor looking at your broken leg saying that you have a, a torn ligament, but it's not really a torn ligament. It's a broken leg. So, the treatment he gives you is not going to help you. It might actually hurt you. So anyways, these questions, sadly enough, that I just mentioned, can't be answered. And this is what this is the limit of human knowledge. Because in order to know that change is taking place, we have to know the status of the planet before and after. You have to compare, right? So you would need an immense amount of global data for the past like the pre-industrial era. You would have to know what the climate looked like 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, and then you'd have to compare it to today. You would need data covering thousands of years in order to see whether or not there's a cycle of change. And see, you can't just, you couldn't just say, I just need data for 5,000 years ago, and then compare it with data today. 
and say, oh, look, it's changed. No, you have to rule out whether it's a natural cycle or not. And that's why you have to have data, global data, through a period of time throughout human history. And even then, that would tell you whether or not there was any kind of natural cycle to climate change. And maybe it would tell you if we're getting more change today than in the past. But see, not enough time has passed, I think, honestly. Because if it's all based on CO2 emissions, then nothing before the pre-industrial era matters. And the industrial era, has we've only been there for the past, oh, I don't know, 250, 300 years or so. So you would need more data in the future to see if um, how much climate change has been caused by man versus how much has been done naturally. So quite simply, we don't have enough data to to make a proper assessment. And we're just going to assume. So if we're just going to assume, then we run the risk of making a very bad decision. And by the way, let's just assume for a minute that there is man-made climate change. Well, what are you going to do about it? Because part of what you have to do is you have to stop all the factories in India and China. What are you going to do, bomb them? You're going to go send over the Air Force to, to blow them up? So it's just unreliable. And the second question that no one's ever asking is this. What makes anyone think that the government is the solution to any man-made climate change? Because I would say that the free market, the market has a better chance of solving problems than the government does. In the market, we see problems and we fix them. Just think of any technology, even the smartphone. The government didn't invent the iPhone, the smartphone. The smartphone solved problems for many people. It solved problems of communication, of, of, of uh, collecting music and collecting data and having access to data at the touch of your fingertips. So that was a revolutionary change, right? So the whole idea is if we have a climate issue and we're having climate change and we need to change it back quickly, it's actually more efficient to do so through the market and through capitalism and competitive markets and free enterprise than it is to have the government do it. So even if we are going to assume that there's climate change, we then have to answer the question, what's the best solution, heavy-handed government or free market enterprise? So that is just a, a few thoughts I had on the whole climate change issue. Again, just some contemporary issues, executive orders. Um, I'm not a big fan of them. I think it is an abuse of power. And what President Biden has done uh, with regards to immigration, it's too vague. It's too vague. It's too ethereal. It's too nebulous. Same thing with the climate change thing. Uh, connecting them together is not, I don't think, particularly wise. I think they're two separate issues. Um, obviously, expanding them to include you know, homosexuality, transgenderism, things like that, I think is inappropriate. And uh, and maybe there are some good ideas in there, such as helping those uh, who are our allies in uh, in foreign conflicts. But again, we need more specifics on what that what that looks like. So anyways, always watch out for that. My encouragement to you, watch out for anything vague, nebulous, or ethereal, very general when it comes to government policies, because that vagueness gives them way too much power, way too much uh, uh, movement to decide, well, it's direct or indirect. You know, it's it's this, it's that. It, it fits the definition. No, government needs to be very limited. And so their decisions and their rules need to be very specific.
and very clear as to what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how they're going to do it, and how are they going to assess whether it was successful or not. Anyways, that's all I have for today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a blessed week, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Take care, and God bless.